We'll hear argument next to number 95-1225, United States versus Marion Brock Camp. Mr. Wallace. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In these companion cases, a divided panel of the Court of Appeals uh, held that equitable tolling may be applied to enlarge or suspend the statutory periods that limit the time for filing and the amount of recovery that may be had on tax refund claims. As we recount in our brief, uh, recent decisions of the first, fourth, tenth, and eleventh circuits have held to the contrary. Uh, our submission is that those four circuits reach the result that is required by uh, the text of the interrelated statutory provisions that govern here, and I would like to turn to uh, the statutory text now, which is set out at pages two to four of the government's brief. And we start with um, uh, the last uh, of the provisions that set out um, uh, section 7422A of the Internal Revenue Code which the term before last in United States against Williams, this court referred to as a provision that requires administrative exhaustion. This is found on page four. On page four of the government's brief in the gray cover. Um, and it says that no suit or proceeding should be maintained in any court skipping down until uh, for uh, a refund until a claim for refund or credit has been duly filed with the secretary according to the provisions of law in that regard. And the controlling provisions, in our view, are those set forth on the preceding two pages, the uh, various provisions of Section 6511 of the Internal Revenue Code. And that uh, section starts off in subsection A with a statement of a period of limitation on filing a refund claim with the Internal Revenue Service for present purposes since a tax return is required for an income tax. Um, the uh, 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 claim must be filed within three years from the time the return was filed, or two years from the time the tax was paid. Can I ask you a, 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 what might be an irrelevant question on that point, but would help with my understanding of the statute? Apparently, in their brief on page 18, it did say, as first enacted, it said it's within three years from the time the return was required to be filed. And when you read the statute, it same thing came, came up, uh, I think, last year, you know, in a different case. And I've yeah. never been able to understand the statute for that reason. In the London And they case. left those words was required out. And then it seems as if you could file a, a return like 82 years later. And 82 years later, now it's not too late, and they start the statute running, but the 
grab back only goes back two or three years. Now, now what was... these things amended for us, Mr. Wilson, <laughs> so they can make some sense. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I, 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 that's not uh, part of the duties that I have, but uh, uh, the government is looking into the possibility of statutory amendment. The question you well, did, posed... Wasn't there a provision uh, offered for amending this very... Uh, there hasn't question? actually been a provision offered. There was an announcement that a provision was being prepared for offering, but it still has not been offered. Is it still being prepared? Uh, well, uh, there are, uh, it's under study. Uh, I'm not privy to the discussions. There are inherent difficulties in addressing this question because of uh, uh, the massive number of returns that are filed every year, difficulties that we've referred to. Was this an accident? They left out the words that were required or was, was required or was some, is some purpose going well, on that I can't understand? We, we, we don't really uh, have an answer to uh, that. Uh, there was, so far as I'm aware, no explanation of why uh, this change occurred in the text. This is a question that in the Lundy case last term, the court found no occasion to reach, and it seldom makes a difference because it can make a difference only if uh, uh, the, uh, in a one-year period uh, because uh, either you, you can go back three years from when the return was filed to see to uh, ask for refunds of taxes paid during those three years or else uh, two years after the tax was paid. And usually with a really late filed return, no taxes were paid within the three years or the two years, and it makes no difference as it makes no difference in either of the cases before us. In any event, let me proceed now to the next uh, provision and, and uh, for our purposes, the more important provision subsection B, which appears on page 3 of uh, uh, the government's brief, and it starts off with a, uh, a subsection 1, which uh, uh, states quite unequivocally the consequences if the claim is not filed within the prescribed period, no credit or refund shall be allowed. Um, now that, it's hard to see that that provision has much purpose other than to emphasize the strictness of the filing requirements. And as we point out on page 20 of our brief, uh, this point is re-emphasized in another provision of the code, section 6514A1, which states that any credit or refund which the service actually gives on a claim that is filed after the expiration of these statutory periods of limitation is, quote, erroneous and, quote, considered void. And it's interesting that in the implementing regulation for that provision, section 6514, the service after tracking the language of the statute then has a cross-reference to the provisions authorizing suit by the government to uh, recover erroneous refunds. But the next subsection uh, seems to us to be what I might refer to as the clincher, uh, the, the most dispositive obstacle 
uh, to the respondents in the Ninth Circuit's position in this case. And that is uh, subsection 2 of subsection B, which uh, is captioned limit on the amount of credit or refund that can be given. And I cannot emphasize too strongly that these caps on the disbursement that can be made from the federal treasury uh, uh, have their own uh, express limitation. While there is a cross-reference to the claims limitation period for purpose of separating categories of claims, there is no cross-reference to the claims limitation for purpose of defining the cap itself. It, it says in subsection A, for example, the amount of credit or refund shall not exceed the portion of the tax paid within a period defined right in this provision equal to three years plus the period of any extension of time for filing the return. And in subsection B, it's the same thing, that the amount of credit or refund shall not exceed the portion of the tax paid during the two years immediately preceding the filing of the claim. These are substantive limitations on disbursements from the Treasury that are authorized. Mr. And Wallace, can I ask you, uh, uh, General, assume we agree with every, all of your arguments and that uh, they, it's too late to file a claim and the taxpayer, or the, this person, who's not really a taxpayer, I guess, has no right to get the money back. Is there anything in the code that would allow the, the Internal Revenue Service, when presented with facts as extreme as they are in this case, to say, gee, we're not entitled to this $7,000, we want to give it back? Could, is there anything that allows the government to give back money they know they're not entitled to? Uh, there is not, uh, Justice Stevens. Uh, uh, the, the government can uh, decide not to oppose a private bill in Congress if, if uh, the facts warrant it, uh, which uh, they probably would might more. Yeah. Well, uh, it depends on which case you're talking about. We've got two cases here, and I'll, I'll get into the facts a little bit more. Perhaps the Webb case, which is being held on petition from the Fourth Circuit, is one where there's more clearly been a finding in the state courts in related litigation about precisely what happened, so that there is less room for uh, uh, questioning the factual accuracy of a look-back affidavit about uh, what someone's capacity no, was four and a half years earlier. You really didn't dispute the facts, but you still have no authority to give them. Well, if we're looking right now at the provision which seems to preclude authority in no, the IRS. In terms of claims, at least in terms of claims, I'm assuming a fact situation which there's no, quote, claim within the meaning of the statute. Well, um, the discovery that we got $7,000 that obviously doesn't that, belong to us. Uh, that, if we turn to the top of page four, that is subsection C of the same provision, limit if no claim filed. And that says uh, uh, that you still have to meet the time limits of subsections A and B. So it's very hard to see how the service could feel authorized to, dis to make a disbursement of, of Treasury funds Wallace, in this situation. Ask, if, if this was not a problem that was noticed 
uh, by the administration, at least there was a press release at the very time that your cert petition was filed. That is correct. In which I believe the president announced that the law must be followed, but this is a, a very hard situation for people to be in, that they overpaid and they can't get it back. So wasn't it proposed that there be a study of what legislative solution there might be to help people out in this fund? And and that is under study. Uh, I know the study is in the Treasury Department. Well, would you recommend, assuming the facts uh, are as the petitioner states, uh, as the respondent states them in Brock Camp, the case of the elderly man, would you recommend that the private bill be passed? Well, I, I, I can't, would I personally recommend it? Yes, well, I, I, I can't say that we faced up to that. What all we have in because, that Because case, I've noticed you've, you've had two of these bills in 34 years, uh, so there have been rather pretty few. tough on these. There have been rather few, but these are not instigated by us, after all. They're, they're instigated by the taxpayers if they can get a congressional sponsor. Well, certainly the Justice what, Department would recommend a private bill in, in, in this case. Well, it, can you speak to we, we don't know the facts. We, we only know what uh, uh, the administrator's affidavit, the daughter's affidavit said four years, four, more than four and a half years after, after the events occurred here. It's, it's, uh, there wasn't any contemporaneous finding about whether uh, uh, this man had the capacity or not. Uh, the receipt by the IRS was not an unusual one. Oftentimes, uh, elderly taxpayers have capital gains uh, or, or other sudden uh, uh, increases in income, and there was no explanation for it. it. The check merely accompanied an extension of time request. Obviously, the family was in a better position to be monitoring his financial affairs than the Internal Revenue Service was and could have uh, uh, looked into uh, his bank accounts if they thought at the time that there was lack of capacity. They're now saying four and a half years later uh, that uh, there was lack of capacity at a time when it's difficult uh, to uh, uh, prove it. And this kind of claim can be made in many cases. I, I, I might, uh, as a matter of fact, since we're into the facts, talk a little bit about the facts in the Scott case where there was actually a bench trial. And um, Mr. Wallace, may I ask before you do if you can just uh, clarify for me what would be within the universe of possible responses besides a private bill? I suppose what the administration was looking for was not a private bill, but something maybe akin to the mitigation rules? Or there could be something of that sort. It could be temporarily limited. They could uh, 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 expand um, uh, the time periods upon a showing of certain kinds of incapacity, um, uh, but they could expand them for only a limited time because each year you expand it, you're adding another 200 million tax returns that possibly could be reopened at a time when there's talk about downsizing the Internal Revenue Service 
and at a time when um, uh, there are budget constraints. And in order for legislation of this kind to be adopted, uh, Congress needs help in uh, preparing a revenue impact assessment of it. Um, rather hard to do since uh, we don't know easily uh, how to estimate how many additional out-of-time uh, refund claims might be stimulated once there were a provision that allowed consideration of the individual circumstances of taxpayers. Uh, the service has estimated that it now turns down about 250,000 refund claims a year in whole without examining um, uh, whether the refund was warranted or not because they're out of time. But most tax counsel uh, wouldn't file an out-of-time uh, refund claim today on behalf of a client. Might the, That figure might increase a great deal. Uh, so another possible uh, legislative response to this uh, would be simply to increase the limitations periods in the hope that more situations such as the alleged situation of Mr. McGill would be caught without having uh, to examine the individual circumstances of individual taxpayers um, uh, just to give their uh, um, guardians or uh, relatives more time in which to ferret out examples of this kind, which would be much less administratively burdened. There are all kinds of possibilities, but to date, nothing has been proposed by the administration to the Congress, uh, nor am I, we'll, we'll of course inform the court if any con uh, action is taken, either on the Hill or by the administration. In the meantime, it must be recognized that the press release that was issued was issued on the premise that the existing law bars such claims as we think these caps on the refund do. And there's no point in saying that the claim can be allowed for a longer period if you can't uh, get any payment as a result of filing the claim. So read as a whole, uh, the provision is inconsistent with equitable tolling. Um, as uh, the court concluded uh, the applicable provisions in the Lamps case were. And I, I do want to emphasize that with respect to an express cap on disbursements from the Treasury, there is uh, no more fitting example of where the traditional rules about waivers of sovereign immunity should be, should be applied um, when Congress has, has uh, uh, explicitly cap the disbursement that is authorized to be made that uh, 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 cannot be enlarged beyond what the language requires, as the court has said about waivers of sovereign immunity. Uh, a, a court is not in a position to enlarge it on equitable grounds. It's quite different from uh, just a, a statute of limitations on the filing of the claim itself. As far as the equity is concerned, do you need to go say anything more than the court did in its decision in the Daum case? Well, uh, uh, the Daum case really addresses uh, everything that's at issue here. Uh, what, what was uh, 
uh, ask for in Dom, an expansion of the doctrine of equitable recoupment, was a, an equitable claim very similar to a tolling claim, and some would refer to it as a tolling claim. It, it, it's a form of a claim for avoidance of the limitations period that isn't as precisely defined a deferral of the limitations period as the ordinary tolling claim, but it's very similar. And, and we think uh, the Dahm decision uh, does have a controlling analysis here, and in particular it's holding that uh, these provisions uh, concerning tax refund suits must be read in conformity with one another and with all the cross-referencing that's involved here. Let me just talk very briefly about the facts of the Scott case to show what kind of thing we're concerned with here. And in Scott, we proceeded all the way to a bench trial with findings. And some of those findings, which are set forth on pages 44A and 45A, of the appendix to our petition are, are rather telling here. For one thing... But the only case we have before us is the Brockamp case. Mr. No, uh, well, we, we have both of them together, oh, Mr. That? Chief Justice. They were decided as companion cases, and we petitioned in the two cases. I see. Uh, 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 the Court of Appeals decided to put the Brockamp case forward... Uh, go ahead, go ahead. As, as one where... Uh, Perhaps the services problems were not quite as apparent as they would be in the Scott case uh, from our standpoint. Um, the, um, the companion case in Scott uh, involved his 1984 tax liability. What the service knew was that he himself, uh, even though the claim now is incapacity because of alcoholism, he himself had filed in January of 1985 his estimated tax return and payment. His father had done that with his prior installments of estimated tax for 1984. And then uh, through the bench trial proceedings, we were able to find out uh, some facts which, we, which uh, the district court has listed on pages 44A and 45A that in 1984, Scott executed a partnership agreement to operate a retail wine shop. In 1985, he entered into an agreement dissolving the partnership so that he could operate the shop on his own. During the time he operated, he filed his state sales tax, he, uh, and he obtained an attorney to represent him on driving under the influence charges in 87 and 88. He opened and closed his retail business every day and paid his utilities and rent. So even on the basis of what we were able to learn through a trial, there was considerable doubt. Uh, the district court itself said without the expert testimony in this case, and I'm reading from finding 21, the court might otherwise find the United States argument somewhat persuasive. Of course, expert testimony is something that doesn't occur until the trial itself. What was the expert testimony about? It was about how alcoholism can be incapacitating. But, uh, uh, and there were two doctors, one for the government and one for uh, the defense. But obviously, the service would have to be very wary the more a claim of incapacity seems uh, specific only to the capacity to comply with the internal revenue laws and leaves uh, the person able to comply with many other laws. 
the administrative finding, uh, I mean, uh, 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 in such a case would not be one where the service could easily decide that it was an appropriate occasion for tolling. These are, are very difficult matters to handle. They're not the kind of green eye shade investigations of a tax return that uh, service personnel are ordinarily engaged in, nor are the facts easily assembled. Now, we're, we're dealing here with a, a very uh, difficult uh, administrative question and one that uh, both the administration and Congress uh, uh, may give appropriate consideration to, but they obviously have to tread with caution considering the magnitude of the task that is assigned to the service. If I may, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Wallace. Uh, Mr. Kluger, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The government would have us believe that where a disabled taxpayer erroneously overpays his taxes and later through some miracle determines that he has overpaid and then seeks his redress, the government would have us believe that Congress intended that that disabled taxpayer should have no redress, even in a case such as this, the Bocamp case, where the erroneous overpayment was a direct result of the taxpayer's disability. Well, he has redress for three years. I mean, there's just a time limit on it, right? He has no redress because he was disabled throughout the statutory period. That, 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 that is the fact of this case. Um, he would certainly have the, 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 a redress if he were, like the rest of us, a, a competent taxpayer. But throughout the statutory period in 6511, he was disabled. Only through some miracle, uh, his daughter uh, discovered the overpayment following the taxpayer's death. But the tax, and, and the government would have us believe that in this circumstance, not only is there an unfairness, but that I think the, the unfairness is perhaps beside the point. Why should we be tugged by the equities here, and undoubtedly these are, these are hard, hard cases, mm. tugged more by these equities than the court was in the Daum case, which was also a very sympathetic situation. I am not asking, specifically, Your Honor, I am not asking the court to be tugged by the equities. I'm specifically saying the point being that Congress did not intend, could not intend, that this be the result. Well, we have a rather elaborate internal revenue code where presumably Congress has revealed its intent in the sections that are dealt with in the brief. Um, I, yes, that is, that is true. I believe that Congress's intent is revealed, albeit darkly, in Section 6511 itself, in the structure of Section 6511. And, I, and it is best, I think, to, to turn to uh, the operation of this statute. This is a statute of limitations which is not unique but rare in that the clock that starts the statute of limitations may only begin to run but for some predicate act that is performed by the taxpayer, whether it is the filing of the return or in the case of Mr. McGill, cutting a check. Until one of those acts eventuates, the clock never starts to run. 
Now, it doesn't seem to be that much of an intellectual stretch to assume that if this is a statute of limitations that can only begin to run but for the Taxpayers Act, that the Taxpayers Act not be the result of his fantasies or his delusions, but be the act of a rational, competent taxpayer. And if, if, I, if I might, to illustrate this point, a, because the counsel for the, for the government has discussed the, the possibility of holding hundreds of millions of tax returns open, perhaps indefinitely, if equitable tolling applies, this section 6511A, I submit, contemplates that. If we have someone who does not perform any of these two predicate acts, let us assume didn't in 1962, and, and let 30 years go by without paying his tax and without filing his return, and then one day walks in and files his return and pays the tax. And then a year later figures that he overpaid and files a refund claim. That is a perfectly timely refund claim under anyone's interpretation of 6511, even though the government will, ha will have had to wait 31 years for the return and, and, and the check, even though in the litigation to follow, all the facts and circumstances that underlay the tax occurred 31 years ago. That is the way Section 6511 would Would operate. you explain how your interpretation of 6511 applies to the particular facts of your case so as to allow your client to prevail? <clears throat> My client... Uh, what yeah. were, you, you say 6511, you, you say, is, is, is the key? Uh, the point I'm making is that the question that I was addressing in, in answer to Justice Ginsburg's question is, what is there in this statute that leads me to believe that equitable tolling, that this is the type of statute in which equitable tolling might apply. And my answer is that the way that 6511 operates, the statute of limitations, which is what 6511A is, it is a statute of limitations, it can only begin to run after the taxpayer acts. So, and, so uh, would you apply this to your, the fact well, of your in, case? In, in, our, in our specific case, the statute of limitations on the underlying tax never began to run against Stanley McGill throughout his entire life. The government would have us believe that the statute of limitations on refund claims per 6511 ran out even though the underlying period of limitations against the commissioner to assess a tax never began. We submit that... Well, I guess the government takes the position that the money that was paid was payment of the tax. The government... Isn't that the position the government takes? If the government had been... A payment yes, was made. Yes, I understand that. If the government was consistent in that position, the government would have assessed the tax. In direct answer to your question, Your Honor, I don't believe that that is the position the government takes. Didn't they put the check in an overpayment fund? Th that's correct. They, in fact, did not assess. Uh, I, I don't think that fact is necessarily relevant but to the question. But you still have a statute that says no matter what it was. I'm sorry, Your Honor? What, no matter what it was, the payment was, the statute addresses refund. And what, what you want is a refund. So whatever the character of the payment was, 
the Treasury has it, and you want it back, and so you are suing for a refund. That is correct. And this is a rather dense statute, is this, it this, not? This is a, Your Honor, if I might answer that question, perhaps at a little bit of length, this is an extremely dense, dark statute. But it's part of a dense code that does, that does, have, but does I, I, have some provisions for equitable um, mitigation. Uh, yes. and, and, and those provisions themselves are remarkably dense. So why would one, given the density of the code, given the density of the mitigation provisions, say, but the court, because in other areas there's equitable tolling, ought to apply it here as well? Your, Your Honor, this is a, a dense, integrated regime of, of, of refund claims. That is true. I, I feel, however, it is no less dense and integrated than Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which was the grounds for applying equitable tolling in the Irwin decision. In the Irwin decision, we had a procedure for recouping, uh, a procedure for suing on a Title VII case that is really very similar to what we have where, in the statutory regime for refund claims. We had a situation where an individual goes to his particular agency uh, under the Civil Rights Act. If that claim is denied, he goes to the EEOC, at which point there is a 30-day letter that is uh, sent to the individual. If that is denied, he has the opportunity to sue uh, in federal court. A very similar statutory regime. It, it didn't have a substantive limitation as, as this does. And, and how do you handle the substantive limitation here? It, it's not a matter of just getting around it or ignoring it. Nope, you, I, you have to rewrite it. I don't know. I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I don't. I don't. Tell me, tell me how your case comes in under under B B two. What, what? How do you qualify under B two? The, the direct answer, Your Honor, the way we read B two, is that it is not a substantive limitation. To the extent that amounts are limited in B two. It is as a function of a limitation in time. There are plenty of substantive limitations that exist in the Internal Revenue Code. This isn't one of them. For example, the Internal Revenue Code set provides a limitation on the credit you can get against the state taxes. The code says it's limited, $192,800. That is a substantive limitation that is contained in the tax court in the tax code, and no court can change it to $193,000. That's not what we have here. To the extent that it affects a limitation, it is a limitation that is a function of time. And that time in B2 refers back to the time limitations in 6511A. But how do you apply B2? If it was filed by the taxpayer during the three-year period prescribed in subsection A. It wasn't, right? So you're, so you're, not, in, you're not in B2A, right? We are, not, we are not in B2A. There was no return filed. Okay. So you must be in B2B. Mm -hmm. Limit where claim not filed within three-year period. If the claim was not filed within such three-year period, the amount of the credit shall not exceed the portion of the tax paid during the two years immediately preceding the filing of the claim. Now, That's when was your claim filed? I'm sorry, Your Honor? When was your claim filed? The claim was uh, filed, I can give you the exact date, Your Honor. Um, I, the claim was filed in 1991. There were no taxes paid 
during the two years immediately oh, preceding uh, the Oh, of course not. Of course not. So, Hank, I don't understand what you do with B then. You, well, the, B2B the, says you get no money. But the, and but you can is, say you ignore it. I, I don't wish to, to ignore it. I suggest that it is amenable to equitable tolling. You mean you just read right into the very specific provision of B2B some kind of equity principle? Oh, ab ab absolutely. In, in, in the same way... We did. Well, Dom... I mean, Dom refused to do that in a similar situation. Dom was decided just about the same time as Irwin was, uh, which suggests that perhaps you don't go into equitable tolling when you're dealing with something as complicated as the Internal Revenue Code. Well, I believe that Dom is distinguishable in that the issue of a taxpayer's disability did not arise, number one, and Dom limited the application of an equitable principle. It didn't eliminate the amenability of the tax code to an equitable principle. It limited it. Quite frankly, in the Dom case, the litigant had the ability to litigate the second tax in the tax court and, and slept on her rights. But wasn't there some, some not entirely honorable conduct on the government side in that case in Tripping or trapping her? I don't believe so. I, I, as I Wasn't recall, there some line in, in, in an opinion about how badly the government had behaved? In, in the Dom case, I, I don't recall that at all, Your But, Honor. Mr. Kluger, that was in any event not the basis on which we decided the case. We didn't decide there, there is no equity here. We decided there is no equitable polling here. Equity no, or not? No, Your Honor. Uh, the Dom case was, was decided not on equitable tolling, but on equitable recoupment. A, a different doctrine. Uh, equitable tolling okay. did not come into that case at all. No equitable alteration of the of the terms of the code. Well, I, not, not that there was no equity in the case. I mean, that wasn't the, the basis for the decision. Your Honor, after the Dom decision, as I read it, I read that the Dom decision uh, limited this court's prior decision in bull, but did not overrule it. As I read the Dom decision we still have a doctrine of equitable recoupment, and, and the doctrine of equitable recoupment does allow the taxpayer to go and have a set-off against taxes where the period of limitations against that tax did run out. But why? Why? That is, uh, if I can get... I mean, I'm, I'll help you, I think. Maybe I won't. You might not need my help. But the language and complexity doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. It says the claim for refund shall be filed two years from the time the tax was paid. Two years, you say, means two years minus time when he's disabled. That's what you're saying, right? Two years, not counting time when he was disabled. Isn't that your argument? Um, if you don't want to take that argument, you don't have to. But I'm not too, uh, so sure I understand your question. I thought the tolling principle, you have a statute of limitation. It says file within three years. Mm -hmm. Tolling means file within three years not counting disability time. Correct, Your Honor. All right. And you want to read those words in A the same. Yes, Your Honor. And you want to read the words two years in B shall not exceed the portion of the tax paid during the two years immediately preceding to read two years not counting disability time. Isn't that what you're saying? That is correct. All right. We are you started out saying the language is okay, and you started out saying... Uh, the complexity doesn't matter. It just happens that Congress said the same thing twice and not once. So I'm with you so far that you said the government wants us to read that language not to have tolling. 
correct. You're right. But their reason is that they think it would create a total nightmare. Oh, and therefore, to... Congress couldn't have intended this. And indeed, it's the Internal Revenue Code, not noted for its charity, perhaps, but not in, uh, and, it, you know, it's the government. It's not two private people. And uh, uh, they don't have these green eye shades when they try to investigate whether a person was drunk or not drunk or disabled or not disabled. So it couldn't be that Congress intended that. I thought you were going to address that argument when you started. And therefore, I wanted to give you a chance to address it. We are certainly not saying, Your Honor, that a disabled taxpayer is exempt from the statutory provisions that are contained in 6511. We only say that those statutory provisions be deferred until such time as a taxpayer, by whatever means, regains his competency. Yeah, but so, what if he died? In this case, he, didn't he, he die died. without regaining the competency? That's correct. And, and how much, how many years, how long after his death was the claim filed? Um, the, I, the claim was, he died in 19... Uh, 89, and I, it, I believe it was filed in 1991. It was, the claim was timely filed. Within two years from his death? Uh, Your Honor, I, I, I apologize. Well, that's I crucial that. because you could not answer Justice Breyer's question yes, as you did. Uh, making, uh, reading, reading B to B to, uh, to say two years, you know, uh, not including disability time. You'd have to say not including disability time and also not including any time after death. You'd, you'd have to say, right, at, at least his heirs have to do it within two years. Oh, absolutely, Your Honor. That is absolutely true. Well, you his, said they did it within two years here. I thought you said his, you didn't know. His, his, I, I am confident that his competent heirs did file a, a timely claim. Within, within two years after his death. Uh, by what standard do you conclude it was timely? I'm not sure I'm following you. Um, my, 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 my memory fails me as to the exact date, Your Honor, but um, I, I do recall, and I can represent to the Court, that that was the case. That but it was within two years of the time that the heirs discovered that the money had been mistakenly paid. Would that be enough? I suppose equitable, too. I don't know why the death is the critical point. It seems to me in most of these doctrines... It's when the claimant discovers the cause of action. If you say he's, un, you know, there's an excusable failure to get the facts sooner. So I don't know why the death is critical. Seems it's to me it's only critical because of the way Justice Breyer put the question. You, 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 would, you would have to say, no, Justice Breyer, not just disability, but disability or other or anything, is, uh, yeah, anything else that justifies the failure to which makes file, it a little hard. Is lack of discovery. It's getting to be a pretty long provision that we're writing here. Well, that's right. But that's your, that, I think that's your... I, I'm not sure. Is your theory one of just disability, or is it an inability to discover? No, we, we believe that uh, consistent with uh, a, a self-assessment uh, tax, uh, tax regime, that the disability with respect to tolling should be that disability on the part of a taxpayer that... Uh, inhibits the taxpayer from filing return. Uh, yeah, but why isn't the, if the heir, I mean, the administrator of the estate or whoever it is, doesn't find the records for two or three years, the administrator was equally disabled. 
It's not because of mental disability. It's just because she didn't have the facts. I mean, I'm just not sure that you're, you've got a principle here unless you extend it beyond the, the period you're relying on. Um, in, in fairness to, to, to the government, I think that equitable tolling, the, the, the grounds on which a court should apply equitable tolling, the disabilities that should qualify is, is, is a narrow one because, uh, because the government does have a, a legitimate uh, need to... Uh, but not so now that it wouldn't include at least alcoholics and people who are senile. Your Honor, if it's an alcoholic, if it is someone who's senile, it should be, the standard should be, what was, was there a disability throughout the statutory period that inhibited the taxpayer from having a you'd have a trial in each case. Absolutely. As we see in the case of an alcoholic, some of them can carry on a business uh, and function all right. Others can't function. That, that is absolutely correct. Somebody who's betwixt in between, say, in the first stages of a debilitating disease, uh, there'll be a, a great variety of many, many room, much room for trials, right? I don't think so, Your Honor. Uh, for this reason. Um, um, Mr. Wallace has, has raised the specter, and they certainly do on their brief, of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of tax returns that might remain open if this doctrine were permitted um, in this area. Um, we think that's an exaggeration, to say the least, for this reason. Um, we feel that since 1990, when this court decided the Irwin case, that in fact the floodgates were open. That but did the yeah, but numbers down so quickly? I mean, they were very close in time, weren't they? I, I'm sorry, Your Honor? The Down case and the Irwin case yes. were within a year of each other. Thanks. Yes, Your Honor. And so you think that there was such rethinking, a light dawned in Irwin that led to, uh, uh, to the, the court in Down having seen the error of its ways. So if it that case had come up and the opportunity for equitable tolling uh, had presented itself, they would have been Maybe he's claiming alcoholism is inconsistent with what they... I, I don't think that Dom and Erwin are inconsistent with each other. I, I think they don't have anything to do with each other. They deal with different doctrines. The Erwin decision dealt with equitable tolling. The Dom decision dealt with equitable recoupment and did not... No, but there's another distinction that you can make. You, you, can, you can take the position that Justice Scalia did and say, let's bring everything under the umbrella of equitable adjustment. And then there are still distinctions between the cases. And the one is, Title VII case was dealing with a situation in which the government is, is often in the position of, the, of, of a private individual uh, who, who normally gets the benefit of, of equitable tolling. Whereas in the revenue situation... Uh, the, the government is in a position peculiar unto itself. So those would be good reasons to say uh, that there's no reason to think that, the, the, that there would be a spillover over of equitable considerations from a Title VII case to a revenue case. And, and that seems to me to make more sense of the fact that these two cases came down in the same term uh, in which it would be very odd to think that one was being undercut by the other so soon. Well, I don't think that one undercut another. Um, the, the Irwin decision uh, did not 
mention the Dom case, nor do I expect that it would, but in the Irwin decision, uh, from what I have read, uh, the briefs in that case and the argument in that case did not mention Dom. I have to presume that... Dom was decided after yeah. Irwin, wasn't it? No, the... the, the, the Irwin after, a few months after, I think. Correct. I, I think that... I, I, I assume that the reason that the Irwin decision does not mention Dom or that the, the briefs in that decision don't mention Dom or that, it, that the Dom was not argued at Irwin was that the two cases just don't have anything to do with each other. They're on different principles. Um, the, the different principles being equitable tolling versus equitable... Equitable recoupment, yeah. exactly. But if we don't accept that distinction, uh, doesn't the remaining distinction, in other words, if we generalize equity, then aren't you faced with the fact that, that, that the, the Title VII considerations would not normally be applicable to a revenue case? Correct. Uh, Your Honor... <laughs> If this court decides that, that, that Dom applies in, in equitable tolling to the same extent that it applies to equitable recoupment, I have a problem. That certainly is true. In fact, isn't it true that in the Dom case, it was at least some of us thought that the government was guilty of inequitable conduct? And here you don't have any claim of inequitable conduct against the government. In a sense, the government's case is perhaps stronger here than it was in Dom. Uh, I, I don't. I, I, I will admit, Your Honor, I did not read uh, the Dom decision. Probably didn't read the dissent then, I guess. <laughs> oh, indeed, I, I did. I, indeed, I did, Your Honor. And I, I noted that uh, the dissenter in that case indicated that um, this was a case that would have very narrow applicability. I'm surprised that uh, I was surprised that the government would seek to pump up Dom into a Something that... Uh, well, do you think that, the government is bound by the dissent's view of the opinion in Dahm? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. My point is that, that Dahm should not apply because it applies to a different yeah. doctrine. Yeah, but, but I am correct, am I not, that you are not accusing the government of, of inequitable conduct in this case? Oh, absolutely not. No. no. Um, in, in the brief time um, remaining... Um, uh, may, may I... I, I think that the... In the mitigation rules, there is some element of the government having taken an inconsistent provision, and then it seems to be that you have to have that much. Am I not right that, that um, where the government describes it in its brief, the mitigation provisions apply to problems that exist when the party that asserts the statute of limitations, and the only one who would assert it would be the government, had prior to the running of the statute taken a position inconsistent with its current position? That, that is correct. The, the government uh, has an, an inference from the existence of the mitigation provisions that these provisions should be exclusive. The only, that the mitigation provisions, which are statutory, are the yeah, only... Yeah, but maybe what they're saying is that the government, the Congress was so strict in allowing any mitigation at all. When they, so the notion that they meant it when they didn't say it is a little hard to... I, 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 I'm afraid I don't understand uh, the thrust of your question. The mitigation provisions are is a, is a statutory provision. Right. It was, from my reading, enacted because equitable recoupment, um, the cases were going all over the place, and so Congress felt that they should bring some order to this doctrine of equitable recoupment. And so they enacted uh, the mitigation provisions. They are very, very narrow pr provisions. They arise in... Uh, only the, um, the, the rarest 
circumstances. Um, but I think the existence of the, of the mitigation provisions, the statutory mitigation provisions, proves one point, which is that if you have a statutory mitigation provision in the tax code, it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot have an equitable overlay, because we still do have an equitable overlay, and that equitable overlay is the doctrine of equitable recoupment, which exists side by side with, with the mitigation provisions of the tax code. Uh, those provisions... If, 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 wouldn't, wouldn't it totally eclipse what's in the code if you could just say, I don't want to deal with that then stuff, it's so narrow and so technical. Give me equitable tolling writ large. Oh, no, no, Your Honor. Equitable recoupment uh, applies in a very, very narrow area. It certainly is not limited to incompetent taxpayers. You don't have your choice. It's not like a cafeteria. You don't get equitable recoupment or equitable tolling. Uh, equitable recoupment only can arise when two, when the taxpayer is called upon to pay two, to pay the same tax twice under different theories. That's equitable recoupment. Equitable tolling is a completely different doc doctrine. It reminds me of what Mark Twain said about fires and fireflies. You know, they may sound alike, but just Why because they sound... Why should we be more responsive to getting back a tax paid once than a tax paid twice? Again, Your Honor, two, two different uh, doctrines here. We, but we you are responsive... But you, you are making equity, equity your plea, right? So That's correct. So I'm yeah, thinking of correct. different situations where one might be drawn by the equities of the situation. Because even in, in administering a system of equity, you have to have a rational basis. Yes, Your Honor. The, the equities, I, I, I submit, are stronger in, in this case than they were, for example, in Dahm. In Dahm, the, ta the, may I complete? Yes, finish in your Dahm, answer, the taxpayer had the ability to litigate the case. In our case, we never had the ability. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kluger. Mr. Wallace, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. In Irwin, the court recognized that waivers of sovereign immunity must be unequivocally expressed and then said that once Congress has made such a waiver, we think that uh, uh, the rule of equitable tolling uh, should be applicable to suits against the government in the same way as to suits against private defendants, and that amounts to little, if any, broadening of the congressional waiver. Those, uh, uh, that uh, rationale applies to uh, tolling of the limitations for filing suit or for filing claims. It really is not addressed to uh, the uh, obstacle here, which is a substantive limitation, a cap that Congress has imposed on the amount of the refund that's authorized to be dispersed from the federal treasury. And uh, as I pointed out earlier, therefore, uh, um, uh, uh, it would require a, uh, a broadening of a, a waiver of sovereign immunity beyond the express terms of the waiver to uh, rule that uh, a court may override this cap. 
uh, in, in the very sensitive area of disbursements from uh, the Treasury, uh, uh, the uh, area that is most related to uh, the uh, constitutional underpinnings of the doctrine of uh, sovereign immunity itself, including the provision we have pointed to in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7, that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Now, it is the fact that in Webb, uh, the uh, Fourth Circuit suggested some uh, ways of uh, reading uh, the rebuttable presumption in uh, Irwin more narrowly, um, and uh, we have done the same thing in a pending petition and reply brief in a case called United States Against Fatim involving the Quiet Title Act, which we have suggested that the court hold for the decision in this case. But uh, uh, And I think that these suggestions uh, are well worthy of consideration. And the court in Webb, at the conclusion of its opinion, pointed out some other areas involving other federal statutes where uh, various courts have held that the rebuttable presumption uh, uh, has been overcome, even uh, if the presumption of Irwin does apply. But in this particular case, we're really beyond the area uh, uh, where uh, uh, it's just a limitation on the filing of the claim that's at issue. The court has no further... Is, is, the, is the claim filed under the statute when uh, the secretary just gives the notice to the Internal Revenue Service, or is the claim filed when there's a refund suit filed? I think it's the former, is it not? It puts, How do you file puts a claim, the claim to the service. There's a separate provision uh, 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 involving limitations on filing the suit, and that has to be within two years after the disallowance of the claim. That is Section 6532A1 of Thank Title you. 26. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. The case is submitted.